This morning we are continuing in our survey series on the Gospel of John, looking at one of the most well-known scriptures of all time. Life has many mysteries, and of course it goes along with many unanswered questions for us to ponder. There was one little boy who was attempting to solve one of these mysteries, and he had an unanswered question that he asked his grandmother. He asked her, Grandma, when a cow laughs, does milk come out of its nose? And a big smile crossed her face, and without skipping a beat, the the grandma quickly replied, of course, and not only that, if it's a brown cow, it's chocolate milk. Has anyone else ever told their kids that chocolate milk comes from a brown cow? Or have you been asked that? Mysteries of life. Now, of course, some of life's biggest mysteries are easier to solve than others. And so today we want to look at the profound mystery of being born again. Would you bow with me and let's pray. Father in heaven, this gift of salvation you have given, you have provided for us, You have done it in such a masterful way that even a child can understand it and receive it. And yet, how exactly you have gone about doing all of this is truly an astounding mystery of how you are able to transform sinners worthy of destruction and transform us into children of God, saints, those whom you have redeemed, and that we will reign with you on high one day. This is indeed a mystery. And so this morning, Father, I pray that as we dive into your word, by your Holy Spirit, you would speak through me and reveal to our hearts and minds this great mystery, and that it would become personal in a deeper way for each one of us. I pray that you would speak through these words of mine in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you now to turn with me to John chapter 3, and let's look at this famous passage that we find there. John chapter 3, and there I'll read for you the introduction in verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Now we're going to stop right there. We need to learn two things about Nicodemus right out of the gate. Number one, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. If you're a student of the Bible, if you've spent any amount of time in church, you probably already have a fairly comprehensive view of the Pharisees, and chances are it's not a good one. Chances are, if you've read very much of the Bible at all, you have a negative view of the Pharisees as a bunch of legalistic, religious hypocrites who hated Jesus and wanted him killed. Now, while that's mostly true, it's not the entire story either. You see, in the first century, the Pharisees were widely respected as men who devoted their entire lives to the study of the Torah, which is God's law, and they were known as men who sincerely wanted to obey God with every aspect of their lives. Now, when you look at just those things, it sounds noble. It sounds right. These men devoted their lives to studying God's word and wanted to sincerely obey him in everything, no matter how small of a detail. This meant things like they would pray for at least two hours a day, minimum. Who here prays at least two hours a day, minimum? I'm not going to put anyone on the spot. Okay? These are high standards. Not only that, they would tithe from every single um, one of their possessions right down to details that we wouldn't even think of, like their garden spices. They would make sure that they tithed a tenth of literally everything that they possessed. On top of that, they were known for living 
upstanding moral lives, above reproach. In the public sphere, they were known as the holiest of the holy. And there were only a few thousand Pharisees in the entire nation because there were very few men willing to make this kind of personal commitment and sacrifice. So those who did were held, I think rightly so, in high esteem among the people. Now, having said all of that, the Pharisees, of course, made a tragic error. You see, they completely externalized their religion into a legalistic set of right actions and works. You see, to them, sinner, uh, pardon me, sinful inner attitudes and thoughts were of little to no importance. It was all about the outside. They believed that their outer personal piety and good works was enough that they could somehow please God and make their way to heaven. So what this tells us about Nicodemus right out of the gate, that he was a Pharisee, is that here is a man who is sincerely devoted to following God and obeying him with every aspect of his life. He is sincere in his pursuit of God. However, he is completely focused on the external actions of religion. And we're going to see this manifest itself a little bit later in the story. The second thing we learn about Nicodemus in this introductory verse is that he was, in fact, a member of the 70-member Jewish ruling council, which was known as the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin, they presided over various disputes and settled legal manners amongst the Jewish people. And the reason for this Sanhedrin was that the Romans didn't want to get involved in Jewish affairs. They didn't understand all of their religiosity and their rules, so they'd rather just steer clear, let the Jews handle it themselves. And so the Sanhedrin was formed to take care of internal government affairs. As you might expect, only the leading men were elected to this prestigious position. Now, if we were to compare it to 21st century uh, comparables, there's no position quite like being one of the Sanhedrin in in our culture today. The closest I could come up with is if we had a position of having someone who combined the power of a judge on the Supreme Court with a member of parliament with a church bishop all rolled into one position. So here we see these men have tremendous authority and influence over all of the nation's affairs. Let's move on to verse 2. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. Now the first thing we want to notice is that Nicodemus came at night. Now why did he come at night? Well, there's probably a wide variety of reasons. It's likely that Nicodemus sought this private audience with Jesus because he wanted to have some uninterrupted time which the daytime press of the crowd simply did not allow. It's also likely that as a genuine seeker of the truth, Nicodemus didn't want his fellow Pharisees around to listen into this conversation and wonder if perhaps he was actually believing in Jesus himself. He wanted a private audience to truly bear his heart to Jesus. Now, we also notice what he says to Jesus in his introduction. He says, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. This is an amazing admonition or admission coming from Nicodemus, a Pharisee. Because you see, what he is doing here is recognizing in Jesus something that the other Pharisees did not. 
He recognized in Jesus the same divine power and experienced that same irresistible draw that Philip and Nathaniel had in John chapter 1. We also notice that though Nicodemus was himself one of the most powerful rabbis in Israel, he's one of the Sanhedrin, one of the top dogs, he calls Jesus rabbi. This is profound. For one of the top rabbis in all of Israel to call someone else rabbi was not a small thing. This was huge. He was acknowledging that Jesus was someone of higher authority than himself and as someone who he could learn from someone who he would sit at his feet to learn. For the top rabbi to say Jesus was his rabbi is a huge greeting for him to give, and not one he would have given lightly. And this leads us to one of our first clues in solving the mystery of being born again. The first piece of the puzzle is this. Nicodemus is recognizing something in this initial exchange that I think is going to take him a long time to pick up on, but that thing is this. He is beginning to realize that outward, outward external religious activity alone is not enough. We need a higher power than ourselves to achieve the rebirth. You see, if, if Nicodemus had been so sure about his external religious activity he wouldn't have bothered going to Jesus. He wouldn't have had any questions because he should have been secure in his position. As someone who is so high in the law and in obedience to the law, he had nothing to worry about. And yet there's something internally telling him, you're missing something. And so he seeks Jesus out. And he comes because despite all of his outer religious activity, there is a void in his heart, something in his soul that is missing, and he knows it. And so he senses, he has a question stirring within him that he doesn't even know how to ask. And notice, Jesus replies to the question before Nicodemus even asks. Verse 3, Nicodemus has not asked one question, and Jesus already gives him the answer that he is looking for. Verse 3, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Nicodemus has asked no question, but this is what was on his heart, and Jesus gets straight to the point. The arrow is right there. And now, despite all of his education, remember, Nicodemus, to be a Pharisee, to be Sanhedrin, he has been studying the Torah since he was a boy. He has most of the scriptures memorized by heart, and he knows all of the other 700 and some smaller laws besides it. He knows all of these things. He is educated, but here we see a look on his face that he is utterly baffled by Jesus' reply. He just doesn't get it. Now, I want you to remember that his religious training was focused solely on external actions. And so here, when Jesus says, you must be born again, immediately Nicodemus is envisioning a grown man being physically reborn. Now, just think about that for a second, and you'll get why he's baffled. Just picture a 200-pound man being birthed from his 150-pound mother. Right? This is beyond absurd. And I know some of the mums here are cringing at this thought, right? But this is what crosses Nicodemus' mind, and it's, it's an utter absurdity to him. He just can't understand, and so his reply shows us this in verse 4. How can a man be born when he is old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. 
Of course, we see Nicodemus missed the point entirely, that Jesus was talking not about a second physical birth, but about a completely different kind, a spiritual birth. But Nicodemus is still stuck in the external realm. And this gives us the second clue to solving the mystery of being born again. Just as a physical birth is required to enter physical life, a spiritual birth is required to enter spiritual life. Physical birth brings us into physical life. Spiritual birth brings us into spiritual life. And here, verse 5, Jesus continues to expound upon this. Unless a man is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. And here Jesus is chipping away at something. He's trying to turn Nicodemus' focus from the outer physical realm to the inner spiritual realm. The water he speaks of here symbolizes purification of the heart. And this is how Nicodemus would have understood it, as he would have been familiar with the prophet Ezekiel's words in 36, verses 25 and 36, where he said, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. Jesus is saying, look, Nicodemus, you're stuck on external things. Look to the internal things. I'm going to wash you with water and put a new spirit in you. It's internal. Start thinking this way. And to make sure that Nicodemus does not misunderstand what he is getting at, Jesus adds an important fact in verse 7. He says, you should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Now here, I want you to have a little grammar lesson with me for a moment. The tense in which Jesus declares, you must be born again. You see, if anyone wants to enter the kingdom of God, the rebirth is not optional. It is imperative. You must be born again. Jesus didn't say, I recommend that you be born again. He didn't say, you should be born again. Um, He didn't say, think about being born again. No, Jesus used the urgent language of forceful command, imperative, you must be born again. In verse 8, Jesus continued, The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Nicodemus is still baffled. He still is not understanding. He's not picking up what Jesus is laying down, at least not yet. Verse 9, he asks again, How can this be? How can this be? Now, here we see that while the wind of the Spirit is literally (laughs) whipping through Nicodemus' hair, he has God in the flesh in front of him, explaining the deep things of God, the mystery of rebirth. It's right in his face. He's asking God in the flesh. The wind of the Spirit is whipping through his hair, but it has not yet penetrated his, his soul, his heart. It has not gone internal. And even though Nicodemus has Jesus in the flesh as his personal rabbi, without the inner transforming work of the Holy Spirit, the second birth simply could not happen. And this leads us to the third clue of being born again. It is an inner work of the Holy Spirit. It is not an external action that we can do. It's not somewhere we go and perform a ceremony. No, 
this has to happen through the Spirit internally. It can happen on the highest mountain. It can happen in the lowest valley. It can happen while you're on a bus, where you're at home, in church. It doesn't matter where you are or what you're doing. It is an inner work of the Holy Spirit to bring about this rebirth. A powerful example of this comes from the testimony of a man named Daniel Webster Whittle. Daniel Webster Whittle was born in the year 1840. He grew up in a very religious home. He reached the rank of major in the Union Army during the American Civil War. And for the rest of his life, he became known as simply Major Whittle. During the war, Whittle lost his right arm, and he ended up in a prisoner of war camp. While recovering from his wounds in the hospital, he looked for something to read, and he found a New Testament. Now, having grown up in a very religious home, you would have thought he had already made this decision long ago, but he had rejected it. Jesus meant nothing to him. But as he read this New Testament, the words began to resonate within him. But still, he was not ready to submit to Christ and receive him. Shortly thereafter, a hospital orderly woke him up and said, A dying prisoner wants someone to pray with him. Whittle declined, That's not me. Look for someone else. But the orderly said, I thought you were a Christian. I've seen you reading your Bible all day. Well, at this, Whittle finally said, that's true, I guess I'll come. He recorded what took place at the dying youth's bedside. He says, I dropped on my knees and I held the boy's hand in mine. In a few broken words, I confessed my sins and asked Christ to forgive me. I believed right then and there that he did forgive me. I then prayed earnestly for this boy. He became quiet and pressed my hand as I prayed and pleaded God's promises on his behalf. When I arose from my knees, he was gone. He had passed away. A look of peace had come over his troubled face, and I cannot but believe that God who used him to bring me to the Savior used me to lead him to trust Christ's precious blood and final pardon. I hope to meet him in heaven one day. It was some years after the war that Major Whittle became friends with the great evangelist D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody soon convinced Whittle to join him in his ministry, and he himself became an evangelist. But while an effective preacher, it was Whittle's hymns that he is most remembered for. And one of his most enduring hymns that he wrote, reflecting on the mystery of his own coming to salvation, these are the words you might recognize. I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin. Revealing Jesus through the word, creating faith in him. But I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Have you ever wondered why you came to faith in Jesus Christ, while others have not? I have. Have you ever wondered why two people can listen to the exact same sermon Have one convicted and repent and believe, and the other one reject it and mock it and scorn it? How can it be that two siblings raised under the exact same circumstances and teaching, one follows Jesus and the other one rejects him? These are mysteries that are not easily answered or understood. But I will answer first by saying this. The wind of the Spirit blows when and where and how he wills. 
not when and where and how we think he should. The second thing is this. When the wind of the Spirit is blowing, you can either hold on to your hat and resist, or you can let him just blow right on through you and surrender your heart, your mind, and your soul to him. Because when the Lord is speaking to a heart and you are feeling convicted, you are hearing him move and feeling him saying, this is for you, respond today, I always say, don't let that moment pass you by because you don't know if another one is coming. So often we assume, I'll have an infinite number of opportunities to respond, but that's simply not true. The Lord always says, today is the day of salvation. If you hear today respond to the invitation, today is the day. If the wind of the Spirit is blowing, don't hold on to your hat and resist and say, yeah, I'll do it another day. Today, respond, believe. This is the mysterious work of the Holy Spirit. And I believe that God gives every single person the personal choice of how they will respond. And whether it comes early, mid, or late in life, how you reply is always of utmost urgency. And this leads us to the fourth clue of this mystery. Being born again determines our eternal destiny. In verse 10, Jesus chides Nicodemus for his lack of spiritual understanding. He gently mocks him, almost in a teasing way. He says, you are Israel's teacher, and you do not understand these things? But then Jesus goes on. And in verses 16 to 18, Jesus speaks what will become the most famous words in all of Scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. We couldn't have it in any more plain, straightforward language than this. To accept God's love and believe in Jesus, this is the only way to enter God's kingdom. There is no other. It is the only way to be saved. And Jesus also spells out the opposite. To reject God's love, to not believe in the name of God's one and only Son, is to remain in a position of condemnation, because our sin condemns us already. But here's the wonderful thing within this message. It doesn't have to be that way. In fact, God does not want it to be that way. Jesus came, so it didn't have to be that way. And as we've been singing this month, the champion of heaven made a way for all to enter in. Everyone. There is a way. And it comes through Jesus Christ, the cross of Calvary, and surrendering to him in faith, receiving that inner work of the Holy Spirit, that we can be reborn into his kingdom. Now, I want you to take notice of something as well. Nicodemus hears these most powerful words that have resonated in millions of souls since then. How did he respond in that moment, hearing the powerful words come from Jesus' lips themselves? Now, I've been stirred by this passage so many times in my life, but I've never once heard them from the lips of Jesus, not in the flesh. But here, Nicodemus did. How does he respond? 
I would imagine instantly he would declare, I believe, I'm persuaded. Jesus, you are Lord and Master. I give myself to you. Does this happen? Not one word of Nicodemus' response is recorded. The text simply moves along to the next scene. We have no clue as to how Nicodemus responded. In fact, we are given a clue later on that he did not respond immediately. And so we wonder, were Jesus' words wasted on Nicodemus? Well, we must be reminded that sometimes the response comes immediately, as it did last week with Nathaniel. He was persuaded and he said, you're the Christ, the King of Israel. But with Nathaniel, it does not come immediately. Here it came, it came much, much later. But never ever assume that speaking God's word is a waste of time simply because we don't see an immediate response. This past year I had an experience that taught me this and it reminded me just how much God wants to save literally everyone, no matter what they've done, where they've been. It was on a sunny August morning of this past year that I was working here in my office at the church when I received a rather unusual text message. The text message was from Dave Parker, whom some of you know well. Dave was out from Calgary visiting his family and had decided to look in on an old classmate that he had grown up with named Mike. Dave had already known that Mike was not in good health and upon visiting learned that in fact a doctor had just spoken the dreaded words... You have only days left to live. You see, Mike was an alcoholic, and his liver was simply finished. It was shutting down. And in this situation, Dave's heart went out to Mike, and he was just deeply concerned that he didn't know the Savior, and that he would be prepared to enter eternity and face God. And so Dave had tried to witness to him, but he just felt like he wasn't getting anywhere. And that's when Dave thought of me, and so he asked Mike's permission if it would be all right if a pastor that he knew came to talk with him about these things and about eternity. And when Mike agreed, he reached out to me. And so after agreeing to go over and speak with Mike, with literally no time to prepare anything, I simply prayed that the Holy Spirit would guide my words and prepare Mike's heart and soul to receive and to respond. So about an hour later, I was at Mike's house Literally never met the man before in my life. I'm meeting him for the very first time. To say that he was in rough shape would be putting it mildly. Though middle-aged, his appearance was that of a man nearly twice his age. It was hard to believe that, that Dave and this man were in the same class together. They looked like they were from different generations, but they're the same age. And And here he is lying there on his couch. His skin is a sickly yellowish tinge as a result of his liver failure. And as we start talking and I tried to get to know him a little bit, it didn't take very long into our conversation to realize that sharing the good news about Jesus with Mike was not going to be the first thing we were going to be talking about. It was going to be way more challenging than even I had anticipated because you see, Mike wasn't even sure if he believed in God or not. And though he readily admitted that the beauty and majesty that he saw in nature often stirred him in an almost spiritual sense, causing him to think that something was out there, possibly, he just wasn't sure. So, using that as a starting point, I shared with Mike a few verses that speak of how God uses his creation to reveal himself to man. One of those was Romans 1 verse 20 that says, 
For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that man is without excuse. And I shared some other verses with him as well about how God uses nature to draw us to the reality of his existence. And so this was a starting point, but still he had a lot of doubts. And he continued to talk about evolutionary theories as a viable explanation for the existence of life. And so when I finally asked him, well, how do you think life began? He replied, I tend to think it was a big fluke. Now, when he said that, I would have normally replied by saying something like, well, if a tornado goes through a junkyard, what are the odds that you will have a perfectly assembled jumbo jet standing in your driveway? You know, what are the odds and how many tornadoes is it going to take to get you that perfectly assembled jumbo jet in your driveway when we want to talk about flukes? But for some reason, I didn't use that example. Because you see, hanging on a display frame on the wall of his house was this autographed Milt Stiegel Bombers jersey. And we had talked about it as sort of an icebreaker when he came in. I'm a Bombers fan. He was a Bombers fan. And, and so there it was, and it caught my eye. And it just so happened that in the Bombers' last game, that had just happened that past week, they had pulled off the greatest comeback in franchise history. They had been down by 12 points with only 48 seconds left on the clock when they had scored a touchdown, then recovered an onside kick, and finally, with only three seconds left, scored another touchdown to beat Montreal 41 to 40. And so, referring to this as an example, I said to Mike, Now that was a fluke. It was highly improbable, but not impossible. You see, there's a difference between highly improbable and impossible. You see, to get an infinitely complex universe out of nothing, that's not only highly improbable, it's impossible. No number of flukes could explain how everything could arise from nothing without a divine creator, without an external source. I then told him that not only did God create everything, but that God desires to be known by his creation. Of everything I said, that seemed to finally catch his attention. And he repeated it to himself. God wants to be known by his creation. And so finally, I just asked him if I could explain to him how God made a relationship with him possible through Jesus. He agreed, and for the next five minutes, I proceeded to, as quickly as possible, explain how Jesus bridges the gap between us and the Father so that we can have our sins forgiven, how we can enter into a right relationship with God. And with little time to work with, I concluded just by emphasizing that anyone who calls upon the name of Jesus Christ will be saved. And I could tell that Mike was listening, but as the time came to a close, there was no indication on his part whatsoever that he was ready to respond in any way. And so I simply concluded by asking if I could pray with him. And he said yes. And so I simply prayed that God would reveal himself to Mike in a personal way that he could understand and respond. And as I left that day, I will admit to you, I had zero confidence that anything I had said made any impact. I had gone in there hoping to lead him to saving faith in Jesus Christ. I had envisioned leading him in a sinner's prayer of repentance. But when I left that day, he appeared no closer than when I first walked in those doors. And then three days later, I get the text from Dave. And it says, Mike's passed away. Three days later, just like that. The finality of it just struck me. And I couldn't help but wonder, had Mike been ready to meet God? 
And I'll be the first one to say I had my doubts. Of course, I knew full well that it was all out of my hands. But I just began to replay that entire exchange in my mind. I began to second guess what I had said, how I had said it. And I was just beating myself up over it. And through some guidance of some friends and my good wife, she finally just got through to me. It's out of your hands and it was always out of your hands. The Holy Spirit brings conviction. You've got to leave it with him and just accept that on this side of eternity, you will never know. And that's okay. And so I made peace with that. Five months passed. Then on New Year's Eve, I had literally just finished preaching from up here. I went and sat down there right before the benediction, and my phone buzzed in my pocket, letting me know I had received a text message. After the service is over, I open up my phone, and it's a message from Mike's estranged wife, who had also been there that day. And this is what it read. Hello, Dan and Dave. As the five months since Mike's passing approaches... I want to take a minute to say thank you to you both. The visit you had with Mike was awesome because later that day, he asked me if he wanted to invite God into his life, how would he do it? And I told him, just ask. And we said a small prayer together and he asked God to help him. Very quietly, introverted how he was. I know he is in heaven. Thank you again. You both made a difference. Both Dave and I, we could hardly believe it. Five months. Five months passed, and I had long since made peace with never knowing if Mike was ready to meet God. And when I got this text message, it almost felt like I'd got it straight from heaven. It literally felt that way, because I had just, it wasn't possible to know, and here it was, five months later, and this verse jumped into my mind from Jude chapter 1. It says, Be merciful to those who doubt, Rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. With only three days until eternity to decide by the mercy of God, God orchestrated things in such a way that he could be rescued, snatched from the fire, moments before it was too late. You know, it's the 11th hour and the 59th minute. And though to me, Mike's salvation seemed highly, highly improbable, with God it was not impossible. You may look around at people you know today and think to yourself, there's not a chance that person's ever going to come to faith in Jesus Christ. We may look at people who scoff and mock the gospel and think, well, they're going to get what's coming to them. But I want to tell you today, though to us it seems so impossible, it seems like it's just never going to happen. With God, with God, anything is possible. And I want to tell you that with God, not only is anything possible, but this is the outcome he desires for every last soul on planet Earth. Jesus is a living testimony today that this is God's desire because he came to die for Mike. He came to die for every person like Mike. He came to die for sinners, for alcoholics. He also came to die for very good people, religious people like Nicodemus who thought they had it all. But whoever we are, whatever position we're in, we are all the same in one thing. We all need Jesus. There is no salvation apart from him. There can be no rebirth without him and the work of the Holy Spirit. And so today I pray that all of us who are in this position of having been born again, what a gift. 
Let's go out and be ready to share it and never assume that just because someone didn't instantly respond that God is not working within that life. And second, I want to say if any of you are here today who recognize you're not yet born again, by the work of the Holy Spirit, you can respond even today. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I praise and thank you that you cared about a guy like Mike enough that you prompted Dave to go to him and to invite me to come and talk with him. And even though, Lord, it only took about an hour and a half out of my day, I just thank you for the privilege that I could speak the words of life in such a way that you could use them within him. And that today I have a great hope that he is with you and that someday I will meet him there. Lord, I pray that for countless other people like Mike, who maybe we haven't once met before in our lives, may we be ready that at moment's notice, if we have the opportunity to speak the words of life, we will speak them boldly, praying that the Holy Spirit will take and transform and translate them into each heart, knowing that ultimately it is your work within each life that we must depend on. We can't do it through our own effort, but through you. Transformation, salvation is possible. So, Father, I pray that you would work this truth out in a deeper way within each one of our lives. I pray, Lord, that if anyone here today needs to respond in a saving way to say yes to you, I pray that you would give them the grace to do that even now. Bless each one now as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.